Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. I'm Eric Wolf, and I'll be your host today for episode 26 of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast. And joining me today is co-host Ashi Vale. Today, we'll be speaking with James Blick. James is a Kiwi living in Madrid, and he loves the power of a great meal, which can connect people and forge friendships. James is the co-founder of Devour Tours, a company that offers food tours in Europe's most delicious destinations, and also of Spain Revealed, a YouTube channel that helps people experience Spain like locals. Welcome, James. Hey, great to meet you guys. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to, to sharing my story and, and any helpful insights uh, for the listeners. Thank you for being with us, James. We're really excited to hear your story. Speaking of which, please tell us how you made it from New Zealand to Spain and have become such a Spain expert. Yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, obviously, Spain and New Zealand are complete antipodes. So, uh, if you drill a hole through Madrid, where I'm based now, through the middle of the earth, you will arrive somewhere in the North Island of New Zealand. Uh, there's actually a Google Maps plugin you can get, which gives you the exact inverse of any point in the world. And I've done it, and you arrive in New Zealand. So I couldn't have gotten any further away, which to the disappointment of my mother. But uh, I think it shows that um, in my family, we've always been great travelers. And, and, and how I got here is that I was working in New Zealand. I was working in, in the film industry. And because New Zealand's so far away, we as Kiwis always want to travel. Uh, and we're good travelers. We're not afraid to get on an airplane for 20 hours or something like that. It's just the nature of coming from a place like New Zealand. And so I had been flatting in New Zealand, been living with a German and French couple and had just sort of fallen in love with the notion of maybe living in Europe for a while. So when I was, I can't remember uh, how old, maybe 25 or so, I decided to move to France for a year to teach English, to learn, well, I'd lear- I knew some French, to practice my French, and as uh, I always say, to meet French women. And I arrived in France, and within the first couple of months, I met a Spanish woman in Toulouse, uh, where I was, where I was living, and kind of one thing led to another, and she became well. She's now my wife, and she's from Madrid. So it was through France that I met the Spanish woman, and then we lived in New Zealand together for actually for a while, and came back to Madrid in 2011. Uh, I was working in advertising at the time, still directing TV commercials, which is what I've been doing in New Zealand. But I realized that I didn't love advertising. And when you move countries, it's a great opportunity to reinvent yourself because there's nobody around you to disappoint or to ask questions and say, oh, but hang on, weren't you doing so-and-so? Weren't you working in advertising? And suddenly you feel like a failure. So the lack of friend networks is kind of freeing in some ways. So I started travel writing. I was falling in love with Spain and learning a lot. So I started writing for uh, The Guardian, Toronto Star, other El País, and but travel writing doesn't pay much. So I decided guiding would be a great addition. And that led to Devour Tours after that. So it's been very organic, but really came from a desire to just live the European dream. Very cliche, I'm afraid. Not at all. What a 
fascinating story. Can you tell us a little bit more about Devar Tours? My passion, uh, and I have two co-founders, Lauren and Alejandro, and really all of our passion is to really help people understand a place in a deep and meaningful way uh, and to do that through its food. When I first moved to Spain, I fell in love with tapas bars. They're not just places for food. They're places where you, where you strike up friendships, you strike up conversations. The real driver for me and I know for my co-founders is that when you love a place so much and you learn so much about it, such as Madrid, you, when you see other people visiting who you can just tell they're going into the wrong bar or they don't quite know how to order or they're not having as rich an experience as you know they can, if they only had more information and more knowledge, then you want to help them. If I see people in, in Spain and I can tell that they're a little bit lost, it pulls on my heartstrings and I do want to go and speak to them and say, hey, around the corner, there's this great little place. Let me take you there and I'll introduce you to Carlos. He does a great tortilla. And it's, it's almost like it's just I have this drive to do that. And really, that's what Devour came out of. It's, it's a little awkward if you just walk up to people and offer to sort of take them around to bars. Uh, but if, you, if they pay you, it's normal. And so it really came out of a desire to help people understand initially Madrid, where we started, in the way that we had learned, to, we had learned about it. We had discovered it over the few years we'd been living here. And I think what's key is that you know, our tours are about food, and we say, but we say we like to fill bellies and minds. And that's really important for us is that if you come on a devour tour, you're going to eat amazing food. We're going to take you to local places. You're going to meet the people serving the food. But we're also going to use food as a way to help connect you to the culture, the history, the story of the place. And, and as I say, we're going to fill your belly and we're going to fill your mind. And I think those two pieces is something that for us is just, is just so critical and, and so important. I would hate to go to a place and not understand it. And such a fun way to understand it is through the food. Uh, and so that was, really, that was really the driving force behind it or the desire. I couldn't agree more, James. That truly is the power of travel to be able to connect with the local culture and not only cherish the differences, but realize just how similar we all are and and just to see and learn uh, through food is really wonderful. So can you share with us a tip for how one might differentiate between an authentic tapas bar and something that perhaps you may not recommend? <laughs> it's, it's a funny question because people often ask that. And it's easy to give the answer that if there's photos of food outside, then you shouldn't go in. What makes it a little more complex than that is that there are some great places that have photos of food outside. And the fact is, the, these I'm thinking of one bar in particular, which is famous for its mushrooms, and they have these terrible photos of food outside because they're amazing at mushrooms, but they're not good at marketing. And so they don't realize that putting photos outside for the knowing tourist is actually a bad thing. And so if you were just to walk into a completely blind to figure out if a place was authentic, you just have to look and see if it looks like there's locals in there, but there's a distinction between authentic and good. Obviously, if you go to a destination, if I went to Peru, for example, I want to go to a place that's authentic and good. A place can be authentic and bad. Locals go there, but it just doesn't serve great food. Or they can serve great food and not be authentic. And so I think really to figure that out, I'm afraid I don't have any great tips because you just, when you land in a place, you're like a beta, a beta version of yourself. You just can't figure out, you have no kind of waypoints or, or markers to figure out what is authenticity and what, and you know what tastes good when you're putting your mouth, but you know, what are good patatas paravas? What is a good tortilla? You don't have context. 
And so really, I think you can give a few tips like, yes, if it's just obviously touristy, if it's all written in multiple languages, if there is a million photos, it could be a bad sign. If it's in the main Plaza Mayor in Madrid, it's probably not a great place to eat. But beyond that, you really have to kind of have to take a food tour and have the experience of walking into a great place and finding out what it's like. James, I'd love to chat with you a little bit more about authenticity because that's uh, definitely a, a touch point that we we talk a lot about and it's of great interest to our listeners. But I'd like to go back for a minute and talk a little bit more about Devour. And mm. I'd like to ask you what's Devour's unique selling proposition? And also, were you concerned when you entered the market about competition? Because you operate in some very popular cities, cities that are popular with tourists. So Barcelona, Madrid, Paris, Lisbon, and there's a lot of other companies out there doing the same thing. So what makes Devour special? Yeah, it's a really good question. Just to answer the second part first, when we started in Madrid, there actually wasn't that many companies in Madrid doing it, which uh, doing what we do. There were some tapas tours. We started with uh, an evening tour that also had a history component, which was very unique. Um, now there's a number of those, uh, but also when we first started with, it was a daytime food tour. There was I may be getting it wrong and maybe there was one, but I just, I I don't think there was anything like that. And so when we started, we did have that, when you start in a market where there's not a lot of competition, in a way it's a blessing because you can make mistakes and you don't have to be the, be the sharpest right from the start. Um, Obviously that could be a curse in some ways because you could not sharpen your kind of your wits uh, early on. But as I said, when we started in, in Madrid and even when we started in Barcelona a few years after in 2014, we started in a neighborhood where there was no, not really any other uh, meaningful competition in terms of in terms of the quantity of tours and things like that. So we had a little easy in that sense. We were obviously looking overseas to what other nascent kind of tour companies were doing in different markets. And, you know, when you're starting out, you really look and learn from what other people are doing. Then you find your own path. And I think that's a, to kind of segue back into the first part of your question. What for us has been is, you know, when you do start, you have this initial instinct of why you want to do this and you look at other players internationally and you're like, well, what are they doing? And, and you sort of start off copying some things and, and finding your own, your own voice with other things, but it takes you a while to really figure out what is, what is unique sometimes about what you do. And because you're, you really have to learn uh, about your unique selling proposition. And I think in the world of food tours, it's challenging because so many things that I could say right now, we go to local bars or we go to local restaurants and et cetera is, is in the copy of, of sort of any food tour company nowadays. So I think when we think about what makes us really unique, there's two things that, that come to mind. And these are sometimes hard things to encapsulate in one log line on the front of a, of, of a website. But for us, it's so critical, that idea of not shortchanging on the information. And so when we say we fill bellies and minds, you know, I've been on other food tours where the food is great, but the depth isn't there on the information that I really want. Devourers, the name that we give to the people who love our tours, are people who have learned that and realized they will get the deep story, they will get the real story. There's an example here in Madrid where there's a million stories of how tapas, or in Spain, of how tapas began. And it's always a king in the 15th century invented tapas. Now, you can hear a million tours where they will tell that story, but it's like, I don't want to stop there because obviously that's not true. I want to know why does tapas exist? What does it reflect about the local culture? 
And so we'll tell the King story because it's fun and it's interesting, but then we'll take it further and say, well, obviously, you know, why is this here? And so I think that information element, that richness of, of information is really, really critical. Obviously, we don't work with chains. We work with local, uh, local establishments. There are food tours that do work with chains and things like that. There are others who, who, who do stand on the principle of working with local businesses as well. And I think for us, what is so critical is that of the three co-founders, Lauren and myself, who run the day-to-day of the company, she's the CEO and I'm the COO, we both started as guides. And I think that's something quite, quite unique compared to some other similar companies that, that are out there. And what it means is that as we grow, so many people, us included, but so many other people in the leadership positions in the company, uh, whether it's operations people, product directors, began as guides, often as freelance guides. And that connection back to the importance of the guide. Somebody said to me, what is the most, if I was to give a food tour class and I was to say, what is the most important thing on a food tour? I would understand that a lot of people on their first day would say, well, the food. But the answer is not the food, it's the guide. The guide is the person who you know, makes or breaks the experience. And so our guide hiring protocols, the importance that we put on guiding and the team that we build is really such a unique thing that I think we really excel at. Uh, And it's something we've heard over and over again in feedback. We really work hard to work with the best people as guides. And having said that, as I say, it's hard to put that on your website, you know, USP, we're the food tour with the best guides. But that's something that we strive to be because we realize the importance of that. You're absolutely right. It's always about the people. I mean, you look at any service business, whether it's restaurants or hotels, or just consider a flight attendant. I mean, if you have a great flight attendant or a great server in a restaurant, you have a great experience. If you have a bad one, it it ruins it. Exactly. You know, I think people know that, but again, it's hard sometimes to put in the extra work to make sure people are well-chosen and well-trained, particularly as your business grows and you have to deal with scale when at the beginning, if we were hiring a guide, Lauren and I would be there doing a little test tour with the guide who was coming on. Now that's not feasible anymore. So as we scale a company, how do we instill that and how do we make sure that continues to happen? And so that's something we put a lot of energy into. James, as you've grown and scaled through Europe now, what are some of the challenges you've faced, both from an operations perspective and perhaps hiring guides, but also from the demand perspective and getting in front of travelers? Yeah, it's interesting. From the demand perspective, you know, just to give people some context, we began in 2011, 2012 in Madrid. And until this year, we only had tours in Spain. And this year we have expanded offer tours in Lisbon, Paris and Rome. And what's been really interesting is that we spend a lot of our time really understanding what we do and what we do well in Spain. To the point that, you know, the company used to be called Devour Spain. And then we we changed the branding a few years back to Devour Tours because we knew we wanted to take this beyond the borders of Spain. I think one of the biggest challenges of of growing and particularly leaving the borders of Spain was, was having the confidence and knowing why we almost not had the right to do it. But why why should we think that we could offer, as these Spain experts, a great tour in Paris? And if you had have asked me four or five years ago, I wouldn't have had an answer to that. But in the last two years, it's become very clear what the answer to that was, that yes, I'm, I know a lot about Madrid. I know a lot about Spain. I began as a guide here. But over the years, what I realized we have learned is so much about what makes for a great experience on a food tour and what makes for a great food tour. And so the realization that, yes, devoured tours can exist in Paris, the missing piece that we've had so far is obviously that local knowledge. But actually, that's an opportunity to work with somebody wonderful 
take Paris as an example, our operations manager and guide there, Jess, is the most phenomenal expert on Paris cuisine, the most wonderful communicator of that. I mean, you know, we're skyrocketing up the ranks in TripAdvisor in Paris, and that's because we've found this wonderful person. And she was leading her own tours through Airbnb before that, but really wanted to be part of a bigger team. And so the ability to say, well, here, Jess, you've got the local knowledge. You're at heart, you're, you've got the things that make up a devourer. We've got all this learning and all this knowledge that we can bring to it and, and build around and support you to be able to grow this. And I think that was the realization that allowed us to, this has allowed us to scale. Demand perspective, how have you guys grown? Has it been TripAdvisor that's been helpful? Uh, how would you guys market yourselves? TripAdvisor has been key. We've always put a lot of energy into TripAdvisor reviews. Obviously, that's changing now, and that's a challenge now. TripAdvisor, I feel like people don't realize it, but effectively, it's a, you know, it's a booking platform. The biggest driver for our growth has been content marketing. And so it's been the fact that we have always put, again, because I've come from a content background with my YouTube channel, Lauren with as a blogger before starting Devour. And so we have always provided wonderful content on our blogs that have just, you know, whether you book a tour or not, that's okay with us. We know enough people will because the, the value of, of the content is so incredible. So most people have found us through that. If you Google for information in, in Spain, you will either come across a Devour blog or, or one of Lauren's or one of my videos and so on her personal blog and on my YouTube channel. And so that has been the key because at the beginning, obviously, you don't have money to market. Now, obviously, there's, there's adver- Google ads and things like that, but really the focus for us has been, has been just providing people with great content and, and letting that filter through into, into us. And, and over time, how, how has that helped us as we expand outside Spain? I think we've reached enough of a critical mass that our brand is strong enough that we can step outside Spain and people recognize us. They took a tour in Spain. Now they're going to Paris. Now they're going to Lisbon and they want to be back. So particularly over the last two years, the strength of the brand, which, you know, the key aspects are obviously, you know, content is one, but really the quality of the tours and, and the, I guess the professionalism, the unity of the brand. We did a rebranding a few years back and we're really happy with the brand and how it looks and how it feels and the message it gives. And so I think the brand is really serving us now. So James, you've been in the food industry for a while now, in the tourism industry specifically. Mm-hmm. What is a concern that you see in the industry these days? And do you have a solution for it? Yeah, what is a concern? I think the, the awareness of how we work within tourism, particularly in destinations that in some cases are suffering from over-tourism and still be clear that we believe that we are providing something that is helping that destination and helping the people who are going there and not, not doing something bad. And I think that people often say, well, how could, well, I don't often say, but people have asked, what's it like to have tours in Barcelona, given that Barcelona is suffering from over-tourism? It's kind of like, there's not a black and white answer to that. I, as a traveler, know that I am not going to cease traveling. The way I travel will change. But when I go to places, I want to have... Uh, be able to make the choice to book with companies that align with my values and align with the, with the changing values that are around travel. And so I think kind of rationalizing and coming to terms with the fact that there are challenges in a lot of the destinations that we operate in and how we are part of the solution in terms of providing a quality experience and supporting local businesses. And I think that's something that's quite challenging to communicate about and just to kind of come to terms with yourself and figure out clarity for yourself. More and more people are traveling and that's not going to stop and that's only going to grow. So 
What does that mean for a place like Barcelona, where we operate? What is the implications of that? I do think that when it comes to over-tourism, companies have to take a responsibility in terms of you know, managing tourism. And I know destination marketing destinations are now seeing themselves as more management destinations. How do we not just market to just come anybody, but how do we manage the amount of people coming in? Tour companies have to be aware of how they manage those people coming in and have to be responsible with that. Cities have to be responsible for that. And also travelers have to be responsible, make responsible choices and make sure that they read the about page of the company that they're booking with and are critical in that way. But I think that's the biggest challenge that we face. Other challenges, something that kind of plays on my mind and I'm aware of is that in my own life, I'm trying to eat less and less meat and the impact of meat on climate change. I'm aware that you know we serve meat on our tours. We're not planning to change that right now, but both in terms of more and more people who choose to not eat meat coming on tours, but also the responsibility around a company that is that you know we all have responsibilities as company owners around how we can be responsible to the environment and and respond to climate change. And what does that mean about the future of 10, 15 years down the line of our tours? I don't have kind of a, a, a plan on that, but it's something that I'm aware of. James, you are living in a difficult country to be a vegetarian in. I am. It's getting better. And it's funny. People, um, people often say, you know, Spaniards eat so much meat. Where are their vegetables? The thing is, we eat a lot of fruit and vegetables. We just don't eat them when we're out. We eat them at home. So people, if you're visiting here, you never see it. But it is getting easier. So, I, you know, ironically, it, at home, there's a lot of, lot of great vegetables eaten. But when people go to tapas bars, they don't want to eat vegetables so much. There are a lot of vegetables, but there's, you know, particularly in Madrid, you know, some good meat on the grill. It's, it's very typical, but Spain is getting better in that, in that respect. But like a lot of European countries, it's still a big part of the culture, you know, sure. particularly pork in this country. Coming up on the first Sunday of November this year and every year is Food Trucks London, our association's flagship international conference and networking event. Food Trucks London connects destinations, entrepreneurs, and key stakeholders from around the world to focus on the business of culinary tourism development and promotion. If you're serious about food tourism and want to take your business or destination to the next level, there's no better place to do so than Food Trucks London. You can get to the event page from the homepage of our website at worldfoodtravel.org. Okay, I wanted to go back a second and talk a little bit more about the over-tourism thing, because let's put yourself in the shoes of a traveler, and you get off the cruise ship in Barcelona, and you're, you booked a food tour, and mm-hmm. you want to go to La Boqueria. You've heard about it. Mm-hmm. You know it's famous. You want to go, and you're walking in Las Ramblas, and it's just teeming with people, so many mm-hmm. people, and you're not really sure where you should be going. And then you, you're supposed to meet your guide over here. And I, I don't know. I mean, from the perspective of a food tour operator, do you take people there? Do you try to take them into maybe neighborhood markets instead? I mean, what are you doing to, to manage visitor expectations and prevent over food tourism? Yeah, it's a good question. And particularly in Barcelona, out of all the cities we operate, it's, it's the most challenging Um, It's the most challenging city. So we did have a tour for a while that visited the Boqueria. And we had this conversation before we launched it. And we decided, again, it comes back to this balance issue that people want to visit it. So you could walk in not knowing you've just gotten off your cruise ship or you've just landed and you walk in and you think the Bocadilla is juice cups and you approach it without being able to really understand it. And that's a shame. You're going to go anyway, potentially. So how can we help you go in a, in a more sustainable way? So when we did run that tour, and we don't run it anymore, it was very small groups. I think it was six people maximum. And we would go 
just at opening time before a lot of people started to arrive. And we would go at a time that wasn't the focus time for, for other tourists. And for a variety of reasons, we stopped uh, offering that tour. But it, it wasn't because of the over-tourism issue. That wasn't the reason we stopped. And I think that tour did justice to that to that market. I guess you could say that given that we don't offer it anymore, do I grieve the fact that we don't go to the Bocchetti anymore? Not really. I would hope that people can find information on our website that helps them understand how to visit it on their own in a meaningful way or in a sustainable way, I should say. On our tours that do go to markets, yes, we do go to markets that are, that are a little bit more uh, less touristed. But one of the challenges for a food tour operator is that we could offer a tour an hour's train ride out of the center that was going to a market where, yeah, you will not see another tourist, but not many people are going to book that tour, which makes it very challenging to operate. So it's, you're trying to find a balance where you can actually provide people with what they're looking for and what is accessible for them. But then once you're on, their, on the tour, you can really show them a place that, while it's not an hour away, is a place that they wouldn't have discovered on their own. And then once you have them on the tour, you're kind of giving them what they want, but you're also going to give them what maybe you think they need a little bit. People book potentially because of the promise of great food, but then as an operator, whether it's a a cooking class or whether it's a food tour, the opportunity to educate people and not in a condescending way, but to really help them make better choices when they're traveling in that destination after the tour, but also in other destinations. If you on your tour talk about the kind of places that we visit and they visit say a great coffee shop that's run by uh, this married couple and have a wonderful experience, then maybe when they're traveling somewhere else, maybe they won't go to Starbucks because they've realized how the value of those, of those more local places. So I think you can have a real strong impact, not just on the tour itself, but on people's travel habits and in the future beyond that. Since we're on the subject of Barcelona, it's kind of well known among destination marketers that the people get off the cruise ship and they go and look for the paella (laughs) restaurants, which is not even native to Barcelona. It's native to Valencia, which is three hours South. So Mm. when you do your tours, do you help manage people's expectations? And if they say, well, why aren't we having paella? Do you explain to them why, or do you give them paella? What what do you do to, to educate those travelers? Yeah. And it's kind of a similar, it's a similar thing. It, It is, Paella is originally from Valencia, and if you ask any uh, Valencian if you could should eat paella outside Valencia, they will tell you no, and they will be very strong about it. I think they can get too strong. My mother-in-law in Madrid makes paella. I mean, effectively, it's become a become a national dish, and you can get great paellas uh, all over the country. So, to take that specific example, in Madrid, in Seville, in San Sebastian, we don't offer paella. In Barcelona, one of our tours does have it. It has a Barcelona version of it, which has more seafood which is something that the locals eat. And so on the one hand, people are going to Spain and you want to be careful not to become too militant. Like, no, I'm not going to give you this at all because because it's not from this village or it's not from this part of town or it's not from this city. You have to have, there's a little bit of gray area on either side that you have to embrace because I think then when you do give them that paella, that's your opportunity to help them understand this dish that if you didn't serve it, you wouldn't give them that opportunity. They wouldn't have that opportunity and really say, well, you know, when we serve paella in Barcelona, we tell people where it's from and that it's not from Barcelona, but the people eat it there and that this is the way they eat it. It's just not Madrid. We don't serve it because it's just simply not that big a deal in Madrid compared to Barcelona or in Seville at all. And so those two cities are kind of beyond the pale a little bit. They're beyond the line whereas in a place like Barcelona, it's not. So there's an opportunity to really kind of help people understand it. We see flamenco in Madrid and Seville, 
but not in San Sebastian or Barcelona. Again, because those flamenco doesn't speak as strongly to the story of those places as it does in Madrid and Seville. In the end, our job is to give people a sense of place and to tell them the story of the destination. And if you're just pulling in cultural things from all over the place without limits, then you're actually not telling the story of the place. James, you had shared with us earlier about a Eureka moment for you when you realized the value of absolute honesty. How did that change who you are and how you communicate? And can you share a story for how that has helped you? Yeah, I've realized that take me 10 years ago, there are certain situations where you would have had to say something, something to someone, uh, maybe in a leadership position, or maybe even to a potential customer. And you would have tried to kind of hedge it a little bit and not be completely honest. And I think what I've learned over time is that if you are honest about why you're doing something or what your needs are, as long as you're a good person, then that need or that, that why is coming from a good place. And so you shouldn't have any fear of sharing that. And so I think we often self-edit ourselves when it comes to, you know, whether it's marketing or whether it comes to just providing leadership within a, within a business context. And then once you kind of relax about that a little bit, you realize, no, actually, I can be honest about this. And it will actually be very disarming for the person I'm speaking to. So a, an example, that's a hard one. As the team has grown around us in Devour, and we have 20-odd employees now, team members and, and about 50 odd freelance guides. As the team has grown, I've realized that particularly in situations of, of leadership or if there's conflict within the team, if someone's having a challenge speaking to someone else. If you try and kind of hedge around that, you just get tied up in knots. I remember speaking to someone and I was saying, you know, it wasn't actually a devour thing, it was something else. And I was like, oh, I'm trying to talk to this person, I'm having trouble, blah, blah, blah. And they said to me, but have you said that to them? Have you said to them what you just said to me? It was almost like a eureka moment that you could say that to that person. And I was like, but do you think I can say it? It's like, of course you can say that because it's coming from a good place. And so I'm kind of not giving you a concrete example because I can't think of one right now, you know, because I think it's within the leadership situation within the company that probably are, there are the most powerful examples, but there's just, you know, there's a number of examples where you're having a meeting with someone, you realize in the past you would have self-edited what you were going to say about what you're feeling because you thought it might come across as too direct or too or whatever it might be. But it's like, no, if you say it with tact and you explain why you're feeling that, and if you're a good person, it's coming from a good place and good intention, then that is actually the most powerful thing to say, hey, you could you know, even to say, I feel a little bit uncomfortable saying this, I feel a bit nervous, but can I just tell you exactly how I'm feeling right now? And I think the ability to kind of have the courage to do that is pretty powerful. And it took me a while to learn that. James, you're absolutely right. Or many times in my life, I've tried to be subtle and yeah. infer things to people so as not to offend and to be polite and diplomatic and so on. And more often than not, it just doesn't work. They don't get the full message or they misunderstand what I'm saying. And so I've kind of come full circle myself and I agree, you just have to be direct. And then sometimes it runs the other way where people think, well, you're being too, you know, you're being obnoxious, you're being too forthright. Mm. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to communicate. And, and if you've got to tell it like it is, you have to tell it like it is. And obviously, you know, there's diplomatic ways of being direct, but being subtle doesn't really work. <laughs> no, it doesn't at all. And I think, I think the key for me was realizing that an important piece within it is tact. You can be direct without tact. You're not going to achieve, the person's going to close off. And so that, that tact piece is really important. And, and I think, you know, being subtle, another, another way is effectively being passive or passive aggressive, but you can also be aggressive. And so finding the place in the middle where you can be assertive and making sure that your needs are filled, but also their needs are filled, i.e. you have to listen to them as well as tell them how you're feeling, then it usually works. And if somebody doesn't want to listen, well, 
you can only be you can only be tactful and, and honest. They can't really ask for anything else. James, while we're on the introspective portion of our podcast, can you tell us if you had to give yourself a single piece of advice to a younger version of you, what would it have been? Huh. I'm 40 now, and I think maybe when I was 25 or 30 or doing things, I struggled to. I mean, I wasn't even aware of this of this notion, but I struggled to. I, I would often wait till things were perfect before I would act. And I do believe that if you want to do something, you should do it before you're ready, before you're 100% ready. Get it about 70% of the way there. I guess the knack is knowing which 70%. Uh, you know, there might be a 30% that's okay to leave, but if you wait till it's 100% ready, it will. It, it's too late in a way. You've lost time. And so I think that's really important. The other side of that is, I guess it's if you're feeling like something isn't right or you're trying to figure out a kind of a path forward, that the only way to figure out that path is through action. Even if it might be kind of the wrong action, you need to course correct. If you sit there and meditate on it, that's an important piece. But to actually do something as well is really critical. And I've found that when I've felt stuck, whether trying to figure out strategy or whatever it may be, I've had to meditate on it and think about it, but also take some sort of action. And that's the only way that you kind of force some sort of realization. What are you reading right now? Or do you have a favorite book? I just did. I just, what did I just read? Uh, we asked this question in our interview questions. We asked people what the last five books that they've read are. And I always empathize with them because I think, man, it's one of those questions that when somebody, when somebody asks you, you're not going to, you know, you, you just go completely blank. Uh, obviously, I'm speaking now because I've gone blank. I'm trying to cover up. <laughs> but no. I, I, but in I, addition to that, it's also, I feel that now that we read on the Kindle, we hmm. rarely see the title of the book as much as we used to before. And so even while I'm reading a book, I can't sometimes recall the title. <laughs> That's true. No, no, it's very true. So one book that I'm working my way through, which my mother gave me 15, 20 years ago, or this is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I'm also reading a book, which is more of, it's more of kind of a, a fetish, if you want, if you will. It's, it's a 60s Spanish cookbook that has a piece of history before each kind of chapter on the history of each region. One of the things I love about that is I love looking at old photos of Spain. I love wondering what it would have been like to kind of walk into a bar in the 1950s or the 1960s, just kind of understand where things have come from. You know, we often talk about like tapas, you know, like tapas as if it's always existed. Well, 10, 20, 30 years ago, it was different. I mean, one of the things we say on our Barcelona tour is everyone goes to Barcelona wanting tapas and now Barcelona has amazing tapas, but tapas are not native to Barcelona. And if you were in Barcelona 50 years ago, there was really no such thing. That's another example of we're really honest with people because knowing that will only enhance their experience because they'll actually have a context of it. So I have this sort of terrible 60s cookbook that my, that my wife gave me that, I, that I'm reading through at the moment and sort of loving all the little pieces of history that are there. I tend to balance one business book and one sort of Spain book. And then I try and also read something in Spanish as well, which is usually a thriller. There's a famous Spanish thriller writer called Montalban. And if I'm going to read something in Spanish, then I always like to read a, a good, a good murder mystery. If you like pictures of old Spain and, and kind of the way things used to be, have you ever seen an episode of the Ministry of Time series on Netflix? I, I that name rings a bell, but but I might be thinking of the Ministry of Sound. So I don't think I have. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a raver at heart, James? No, I'm not. I, I I know that because I always felt not cool enough to ever go to one of those things. So. <laughs> No, so, it's no, uh, 
it's a cool series, El Ministerio del Tiempo. And okay. a lot of the episodes take place in the past, you know, 1500s, 1600s, you know, uh, 1100s. And a lot of things are done in period, period costume and period culture. It's very interesting. I think you might enjoy it. I, now that you say it, now that you say it in Spanish, I have heard of that. There's a bar I go to in, in La Latina here in Madrid sometimes, and one of the waiters uh, has appeared on it several times, and often people comment on that. I've never seen the show, so I never kind of get the reference. But, but okay, I, I, thank you for backing that up. Now I need to go and check it out. But, but yeah, I'm fascinated with the history because I think we always assume that you know things are how they've always been. They've actually they were very different a lot more recently than you think. Uh, often, you know, uh, you go into an old Spanish bar and, look, and it's, you think it, you know, people think that an old Spanish bar, if it's a hundred years old, was kind of serving up beer and tapas a hundred years ago. And it was probably just a shop back then that where people went and filled up their wine or something like that. And obviously it's changed over the time. And I always find that really helpful. And I think on the tour, you don't want to bamboozle people and kind of give them too much, but you want them to give them a sense of where things have come from. James, speaking of going back in time, tell us about the trip you took to the village outside of Istanbul and why and why it's your favorite food travel memory. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, it was when I was kind of preparing for this and you asked about different uh, memories. It was it was great to think about that. And I think the question was, you know, remember your favorite travel or food memory. And and I was sort of stumped for a moment. But then I, I thought about that trip where my wife and I, about seven or eight years ago now, were staying with a friend who was living in Istanbul. And I had a book called uh, Strolling Through Istanbul, I think it's called. Uh, I've got it here somewhere. And it's this sort of literary slash travel guide to Istanbul, which are kind of the balance I always love if I can find a book like that. And one of the things that he did is he talked about the old uh, historic city walls of Istanbul. And I spent two days hiking along the city walls and fell in love with this book. And I was this very freaky person kind of scaling these walls literally two days because they're so, so long. And another little, little kind of piece, a little paragraph was mentioning this, this town up the, it was a bus ride about an hour out of Istanbul. It just sounded kind of magical and sort of strange. And I said to my wife, let's go and let's do this sort of day trip. And we agreed. You know, the, the story of this little village by the sea is that it had, in mythology, it had been where Jason had stopped with Jason and the Argonauts when they were searching or returning. I don't know, even know the exact story for the Golden Fleece. They supposedly pulled in at this place, which is at the entrance uh, to the Black Sea on the Bosphorus. And so I thought, well, let's go and visit. It's called Rumeli Feneri, this place. And so decided to visit, kind of anticipating visiting this kind of quaint old town, this old village that would be very magical and connected with history. And apparently there's this altar there that you can see right at the entry point to the Black Sea that was used by, you know, by priests 2,000 years ago to pray at this very magical spot. So I went with all this kind of magic in my head and then when we got there, our initial first hour was, well, well kind of half an hour was really disappointing because it sort of was kind of a banal little kind of modernized village that didn't seem to have this, didn't sort of fulfill this kind of sense of mystery and magic and quaintness that we were expecting. You know, if you, if you often go to places like Carcassonne or you go to Toledo, they really fulfill that image that you have in your mind. And this place didn't. And then as we started to spend more time there and we ate at a restaurant, we were the only ones there and explored more, we got past that initial disappointment and kind of the initial letting down that our, that our kind of dream had been shattered of what this place might be like. And the actual reality was much more rewarding because we were somewhere that nobody was visiting, no tourists were going to. We're having this wonderful meal in this, in this local little restaurant 
And it was just this place that had so much history and it was, it was, we had it to ourselves. And there was this rocky outcropping where it was literally at the entry point to the Black Sea, which I was climbing up and, and my wife was freaking out from below. I mean, it was pretty dangerous what I was climbing up and I got to the top and there was this kind of piece of marble, which was the remains of this Roman altar. And I was like, wow, it felt like an adventure. It felt like it was something that was hard to do. There wasn't handrails getting up there and a million steps that had been built. And so there was this whole sense of adventure. And I think what was really interesting for me to learn was that when you go to Europe or you go somewhere old, particularly if you're from New Zealand, you have the image of this place and you want it to fulfill your fairy tale image. But sometimes when it doesn't, it's actually more rewarding. Sometimes when it's hard or it's a little bit challenging both to what you expect or to what the experience is, what remains with you is actually much more magical in the end. And I think that's a little kind of interesting way to think about travel. Like how can we go and make sure we can almost create some friction within travel? Travel is becoming increasingly frictionless. You go in your Airbnb and it looks like Ikea and you know everything's the same. And I wonder what we miss out in those kind of experiences. So I, I guess I loved the friction because there was a lot of it on that trip. Just to kind of wrap things up here, do you have a favorite dish or meal that, that you like? Uh, when I used to work in film, people used to say, what's your favorite movie? And, it, and it's a hard one because it really does depend on your mood or the moment. One of the things that I think I love the most here in Spain are the vinegar marinated anchovies, the boquerones in vinagre. It's one of those things that I, I would be sad if it disappeared from my life. But really, whether I feel like those when I walk out the door, it does really depend. And one thing in New Zealand is we don't eat so much seasonally because the temperatures are more similar throughout the whole year. Winter's not as intense and summer's not as intense. But one of the things I've loved about living in Europe is that in the middle of winter, you feel like a, a cocido madrileño, which is the, the local stew. Or you feel like callos, the, the tripe stew. And when it's summer, you feel like gazpacho and things like that. So Bocanoes in Benagada is one of my favorites. They can be so disappointing when they're good, they're great, but also just the joy of kind of eating to the season and huge big meals with, uh, with friends is one of the just the most wonderful things about living in Spain. Yeah, you were saying a good meal, good wine, and most importantly, great company. Yeah, it's interesting. Often people say to me, they'll send me a, an Instagram message and they'll say, oh, best paella in Madrid. You know, and it comes back to that thing. They're in Spain and they want to eat paella. And there are good paellas in Madrid. And I'm not going to reply and say, no, you must not eat paella in Madrid. I will say, hey, it's challenging because it's a dish from Valencia. It's a regional dish. But there are Valencian restaurants in, in Madrid. But it's interesting when you look at the paella restaurant, TripAdvisor reviews, they're all over the place. And even good places have a lot of negative reviews. And I think it's because it's a dish that's so built up. It's a rice dish in the end. It's not going to change your life. And so if you come to Spain and that is like the focal point of your experience, well, I mean, you, I'm not going to say you're going to be disappointed, but you'll probably find that the focal point is something else in the end. Why I'm talking about this is because it comes back to that friend piece is that a, a dish like paella for me, it's like the Kiwi barbecue. That's what a paella is. It's something to be shared in a group with friends. You don't even have plates. You just put all your spoons in the dish and eat out of the dish. And so when you're sitting with your husband or wife or whoever having it, you're kind of missing out a little piece in a way of the experience that is inherent in a paella when a local eats it. And I think that obviously that's quite challenging because you don't know people in the place. Uh, certainly on a food tour, you can hit it with other people and that, and that is great. Or if you go to someone's home, for me, you know, that's the critical ingredient on the paella is friends. That's exactly how we started the interview today. We talked about how you love the power of a great meal to connect people and forge friendships. And that's exactly what you're talking about. And that's exactly what you're doing with Devour Tours. Exactly. Yeah, no. And it's, and it's incredible how when you eat with someone, 
as a guide, I always remember that uh, when you start a tour, these people are all strangers. You're together for three to four hours. By the end of it, it's incredible how food and a little bit of alcohol can really bond people <laughs> and you feel like you've had an experience together. And that's the beauty of eating. It, it, it's like an accelerator for friendships is food. And I think that's what's so fantastic about, about food tours. Well, I think a little bit of alcohol also helps with the foreign languages. It's amazing how much better my Spanish is after a few beers. <laughs> <laughs> Says you. <laughs> well, James, thank you so much for sharing your stories and insights. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Well, thanks thank for James. having me, guys. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a great pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening today. The Eat Well, Travel Better podcast is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association, the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. We empower local communities and businesses with the food and beverage tourism knowledge and tools needed to reach new consumers and gain a competitive edge. Founded in 2003, every year we shepherd a community of almost 100,000 professionals in over 100 countries. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And you can learn more about us, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our family at worldfoodtravel.org. Until next time, eat well and travel better.